Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can begin by turning to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. That's going to be our main text for this morning. And while you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Brett and Molly for the kind introduction and just for the opportunity, Pastor Thomas, the other elders here at CRC. We just, we love this church. We love this church body, this family. And thank you to all of you for being here this morning. The faithful people of CRC, just, you don't care who preaches. You're just here to get the word from the Holy Spirit. So that's fantastic. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm just completely reliant upon you through Jesus Christ, your Son. I just thank you, Lord, that he has died for our sins And that now he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so this morning, just pray that Jesus, you would shepherd and oversee each and every person's soul in in this room this morning. You know all the situations that are beyond what I can know and what I can uh, be aware of. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would come enter into those situations. Just thank you for your Holy Spirit that's here this morning. We pray that you would fall afresh, move in hearts this morning. And that as the Apostle Paul said, I just pray that my words do not have to be in plausible words of man's wisdom, but in power and demonstration of you, Holy Spirit. So we're reliant on you, each and every one of us this morning. We give you this service, Lord. We thank you for it. We consecrate the rest of our day-to-day after preaching this morning and after worship, and we just give it all to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In 1925, King George V of England called upon his son, George VI, to give his closing speech at the Empire Exhibition in London. Now, although this was a very kind gesture of a father to bestow upon his son, it actually turned into quite the fiasco. And as the 2010 film The King's Speech portrayed, this was due to the fact that George VI had a terrible stuttering problem whenever he gave speeches. And as the film continued to show, George's wife sought out speech therapist after speech therapist to try and cure George of this stuttering problem. And that was to no avail until she stumbled upon one lone speech therapist who was able to not only help George with his stuttering problem, but get below the surface to underlying root issues in his heart from traumatization of the past leading to the stuttering problem. And so, in a similar fashion to that of the successful speech therapist in the movie, so likewise our text this morning from James 3 does a similar diagnosis in the hearts in believers. Because much like George VI, James 3 diagnoses our speech to show we also have deeper-rooted heart issues that often reveal areas where we stumble, we sin, we could say stutter, in the way that we live out our faith. And so before we delve into James 3, I just want to give us a brief overview of who James was and what he's said thus far in the text. So for those who aren't aware this morning, James is actually the half-brother of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was conceived by God the Father through the Holy Spirit in Mary, but yet Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. And these children became Jesus' half-siblings while he was here on the earth. And James was one of those brothers who actually did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God. But at some point in James's life, we're not really sure when, he somehow was awakened by the Holy Spirit And he actually put his faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of his sins. And then he would go on to become a leader in the Jerusalem church and then write this letter sometime between 45 and 47 AD. And so he opens his first chapter 
describing how Christians have a unique opportunity to demonstrate our faith in the middle of trials and suffering. And although the world may appear to be successful, may appear to be on top, may appear to be comfortable and living large, yet James's point is that they face the same trials we do, and yet internally they're a mess, and internally Christians possess a joy in Christ through his wise counsel in our everyday lives. And so he reminds believers that this possession comes through hearing God's word, much like we're doing this morning, and then taking it a step further and actually obeying it. And as he continues to talk about obeying the word, he's showing that obedience demonstrates real, humble faith in Christ. However, to doubt God's word and to cave in to the temptation of sin is to actually doubt God's faithfulness and distrust God completely. And so then he goes on in chapter 2 to expand this thought and just go on to talk about what real, living, vibrant faith looks like in contrast to a mere profession of faith without a true heart transformation leading to obedient action. He calls it dead faith, and he rightly calls it double-mindedness, being of two minds, To where one minute you say you believe something from God's word and the next minute your life is contradictory. And that brings us right smack dab to our main text this morning in chapter 3 where James describes how our mouths can often reveal our own doubts as Christians betraying our faith in Christ in everyday life situations. Particularly during dark trying times when our faith is being tested whether it's during suffering, persecution or just simply some sort of minuscule situation that seems overwhelming. So let's go to our text this morning, James chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter. James 3 verse 1, James says this, he says, "Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness." For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the first thing that James does in this text is he actually has a warning to those who are in pastoral ministry or want to go into ministry, a seminary and student like myself, having aspirations to do that. And he talks about the high and weighty call that comes with speaking for God, preaching God's word, that we'll have to give a greater account. There's greater strictness. But yet, once he gets past that, he differentiates, and then he says, you know that we who teach... And he goes on to give a purpose clause where he then says, for we all, indicating that now that he's moved away from that weighty call, he's now addressing every single reader and every single listener. Not one of us gets wiggle room away from this particular text. And so he starts to employ a method right from the start, a method of teaching from the genre of wisdom literature that compares our speech with all sorts of images and visuals And the interesting thing about this particular genre of wisdom literature is it would have been understood in the original audience's culture. It's something that we as Americans in our fast-paced culture don't really understand because we're constantly moving fast-paced and we're not taking the time to slow down and look at what the Lord wants us to see in the text. And also, James would have really been able to understand this teaching well because his brother Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, often used the wisdom literature approach when he taught. You can look at all of his parables or other times he'll say, consider this, look at that, look at the lilies, consider the ravens. And so we can understand here that James is utilizing the same technique that Christ used while he was here on this earth. And as Kostenberger said about James, he said, it should be noted that he is demonstrably immersed in the teachings of Jesus. And so, because Jesus and James were both accustomed to this way of teaching, they use it to help us truly consider what we look like and what we sound like in any given situation. Zach Eswine explains the method of hearing and reading wisdom literature this way. He says, answering wisely takes time. Taking time amid things not yet answered provokes discomfort. A discomfort often required to recover spiritual health. In other words, to recover spiritual health, this method of teaching requires a humble attitude from the listeners to be willing to slow down and to think about what's being communicated through the parallels that the Lord is choosing to show us in any given situation. So let's actually take this approach. Let's slow down and let's look at the text by a few verses here. Let's look at verse 3. He says, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So now he's giving us the example of this majestic horse, this beautiful creature. We're privy to notice all of the leaps over hurdles and other things out in the field. But yet James wants us to see something else, that the real focus is on this little tiny bit in the horse's mouth that actually control its actions bridled in the right direction. And so the horse has appearances of strength, but the strength to control its body is actually in this little bit. And so as we think about a horse needing a bit for its mouth in order to act properly, we need to ask ourselves, what part of our speech correlates with our actions? 
Is the unseen truth of Scripture guiding our bodies like the bit in the horse's mouth? Let's look at verse 4. He gives us another analogy here. He says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so now he's giving us this image of this massive, massive ship that we'd probably see if we went out to Duluth and, and went over and looked at Lake Superior. And so now he's saying that the strong ship actually takes its route by this small rudder. It has the appearance of massive strength, but the real strength is internal and hidden. And so then after giving these visuals, James locks in in verse 5 and he reveals his main point here. He he correlates the two. Look at verse 5. He says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So what's he saying here? He's saying our tongues are something so small that we disregard its deception to boast about truth while covering up internal reality going on in our hearts. Like the large horse or ships, we can often come across as though we're stronger or we're more spiritual than we actually let on to other people. And yet our little conversations or our little irritations, they say otherwise. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, most of our talk is in little moments. You have never uttered a word that does not rule your heart. So now James shows us that our stumbling, our sinning with our mouths, reveals unbelief leading to double-minded actions. Contradictory. Verse 6 compares our tongues with fire from hell setting a forest on fire. And he uses a term where he says, staining our whole bodies, staining our whole lives. And you know, in chapter 1, he said that Christians are to look different than the world. And he said they live lives that are unstained from the world. And so now he starts to kind of trickle back here and reuses this word to talk about how a lot of times we look no different than the world because of what we talk about and the way we react to certain things. Let's read verses 7 through 8. He says, For every kind of beast and a bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So now he's comparing everything that we say and do from time to time out of the flesh to look like poison. Our conversations and our reactions reveal a lot about our hearts. And this aligns with what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, when he said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Read verses 9 and 10 with me. He goes on. He says, With it we bless our Lord and Father. We come into the Lord's Day on a Sunday morning and we just have our hands blasted up and then, oh, wait a second. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So he's probably talking about the car ride home with the kids or the kids with the parents. I don't know which. But either way, we know this to be true. We know that one minute we can look one way and then we can sound a whole lot different. And then verses 11 through 12, for sake of time, he compares our tongues to springs, fig trees, grapevines, and salt ponds. What in the world? Again, we're just not familiar with this style of teaching. We just blow right past that, and we get to the verses that are quotable. But James wants to make a point here. Vines, fig trees, and springs have one purpose. A, A grapevine is producing grapes. It doesn't produce a big fat banana on it. It doesn't produce a watermelon. That's abnormal. A spring of water is meant to refresh. It's meant to give pure water. It's abnormal. 
to see a spring of water polluting, you know, fake nasty water on people at the same time when they go to get a drink of water. And so just like these final visuals serving one purpose of bearing fruit or, or just trying to give refreshing water instead of nasty, scummy water, James is saying, so likewise, Christians, Christians, you're supposed to look different than the world. But I also want to throw a disclaimer right in here at this point, because I can hear some of you probably internally, maybe not, but I know a lot of people this could be really hard to take. It's a weighty couple of verses, and I understand that, and I want to say that I'm not preaching sinless perfection here. That doesn't exist this side of heaven, because Jesus Christ is the only spotless, sinless person who walked perfectly sinless. And he died the perfect death. He lived the perfect life of obedience to the Father. Died the perfect death for our sin and our rebellion against God so that we might be saved from that sin and then restored to right relationship with God. And so I just want to say that this is not a sinless perfection message and we'll get to the light at the end of the tunnel as the message continues to go on. But we do need to stop and think about how we sound as Christians. And that's James's point. He is wanting us to slow down and say, look at how abnormal this is. My brothers, my sisters, this ought not be so. But what I want to know this morning is, do we actually stop to think about how we sound when we are in intense moments with our spouse, at work, with the kids, in ministry situations, in traffic. James wants us to see ourselves in these comparative scenarios so that we might intentionally look to Christ for help right in the middle of these small moments. And I know that's easier said than done because, let's face it, intensity is hard to actually get to the truth when you're in the middle of it. But nonetheless, that's what we ought to do as the church. That's one of the reasons why we have life groups and DNA groups is when we're in the midst of these types of moments, we ought to have that type of reassurance and looking to these types of situations where we see our sin spot on and we confess it right there and we look to Christ for help. I mentioned traffic in this list and I heard a couple chuckles, but I know for a fact that this is something that the Lord has actually been using in my life recently to show that I have some underlying sin below the surface of my reactions in traffic. Because we have something here in the Midwest called the zipper merge lane. Yeah, a couple chuckles out here. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. There's the zipper merge lane where you have like a half mile to get over. And that's great. I don't mind those as much unless, of course, you've been, you know, bumper to bumper and someone goes to the arrow and I know you're supposed to let them over. But nonetheless, I'm talking about the annoying zipper merge lanes where you just got off the off-ramp onto the on-ramp and there's no shoulder And the person, right as soon as you flipped on your blinker, is in your peripheral, and they have been in traffic for who knows how long, and so they're like, nope, not going to do it, not letting you over. And one time I just, actually several times, I felt, I heard myself saying, you better let me over, as though he was supposed to say, oh, wait a second, let's part the Red Sea of cars, Joel Cook is here. I'm sorry, Joel Cook is just this law-abiding citizen, he has no shoulder, let's let him over. But I had to ask myself, why am I so angry in this moment? I'm trying to find my identity in being this law-abiding citizen who clearly this driver can see I have nowhere to go and he ought to, you know, understand that I am worthy of getting in here. But no, he's like Gandalf the Grey saying, you shall not pass, you know, with his car. 
And so I had to ask myself, what's going on here? And I recognized that it was trying to find my identity in how this guy thinks of me as a driver. And my anger indicates that I don't trust God's care for my life. And I want you to just take, a time, take some time right here. Just think about whatever the Lord might be stirring in your heart right now. Because perhaps he wants you to think about that during the service or even after you leave the service. <clears throat> But now that James has caused us to stop and think about the way we speak, he now moves into the diagnosis of what's below the surface in our hearts. And this is demonstrated in one of two things. Number one, living vibrant faith in God, demonstrated in humble dependence on Jesus Christ, his word, the truth of his word, and acting on it with wise responses. And number two, a double-minded selfishness that reacts with words and actions of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So let's go ahead and read these verses right now. Verse 13, James asks the question, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness, or we could say in the humility of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So now we see here, verse 14, James begins to give us a correlation to what he said earlier in verse 5, if you look at it in your Bibles. It says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And so now James says this in verse 14, Do not boast and be false to the truth. So now we can start to make some connections there that when we're boasting of, that our boasting of the tongue is actually being false to the truth that God shows us about ourselves and what he shows us in his word and how they compare. God wants us to see his, God wants us to see our need for his wisdom and direction to navigate through our trials instead of trying to act like a bunch of theological, biblical know-it-alls who continue to act like a bunch of hypocrites. Now, again, I want to say here again in the middle of the sermon, I'm not arguing for sinless perfection. And for those of you in here who feel the weight of these verses, I just want to say that those assumptions and those feelings, those are warranted. They make a lot of sense. These verses are intended to be heavy. They're intended to actually make us see our sin. But I want you to understand that Your assumptions and your feelings, they're warranted because James has often been misread. It's often been misunderstood. It's often been preached very poorly. Not here by anyone at CRC. I'm just going to make that disclaimer. But people have preached it or people have read it as some type of moralistic message devoid of Jesus Christ. As Tom Schreiner said, James is a practical ethic. James speaks to everyday life. But this letter is not the whole of James's theology. There is a danger of reading James moralistically because everything is still based on the forgiveness of sins through Christ on the cross. So in other words, James is to be understood in light of what Jesus has done for us. And if we start to look carefully, we start to actually see the gospel come into focus here because verse 13 segues from these visuals showing us what we look like to then asking another question. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
And at first glance, we might be tempted when we read this to see ourselves on our quote-unquote good days when we were supposedly acting wise. And I just want to tell you that all the while, we're forgetting that this verse right here is none of us at our core. Because at our core, we're not the wise and understanding ones who walk in the humility of God's wisdom on our own. Jesus Christ is the wise and understanding one who has been tempted in all points, yet never failed, never sinned. And he alone is the one who understands what we're going through and can give us the wisdom that we need to walk through these things. In order for the good news of the gospel to penetrate our hearts, we have to be exposed to the bad news that we see here. Jesus also addressed this very subject in Matthew 15, 18 through 20, when he said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And, you know, the interesting thing is, as Christians, all of us would say amen to everything Jesus said there, because when we hear sin, these are the things we usually think of. But James being wisely inspired by the Holy Spirit, now stands on his brother's shoulders. And Jesus inspires James to say, ah, let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's go into the more tolerated and overlooked sins that are in Christians' hearts. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And there's more, but I want to point out that a lot of times every one of us deals with these two sins on a regular basis more than we would like to admit. Or you might be here today and you haven't really allowed the Lord to slow you down to see if there's any of these things going on inside of you. Allender and Longman say this about jealousy. They say, jealousy asks the question, they're talking about internally, subconsciously, is God good or will he leave me empty and bless others? Because jealousy comes from wanting to keep what we angrily fear we might lose. And I think it's good to flesh these things out the way that wisdom literature seeks to do, the way that James by the Holy Spirit wants us to do. Jealousy starts to come into focus when we recognize it's more than just lashing out and these feelings, those are true, but then there's something below the surface leading to those feelings. And it's really rooted in doubt and unbelief in God's faithful character. Let's go ahead and slow down and diagnose just a little bit more if we're going to practice what we preach, so to speak, here. Do you feel this way when it comes to parenting? Do you feel jealousy when you see someone else's kids who are so well-behaved and you, you're the poster child for a parent of the year? You, you have devotions with your kids. You have catechisms. You do everything. And yet, your kids just aren't getting it because they're sinners like you and like me. And so, as a result, there's this jealous feeling asking below the surface, is God good? Or is he going to go ahead and leave me empty and bless Joe Schmo over here? I know Joe Schmo. And then what begins to happen? In order to make ourselves feel better, we begin to tear down Joe Schmo. And we begin to say, but I know Joe. And Joe's got this and Joe's got that and Joe's terrible. And so you know what? I feel justified and that's great. Sorry, Joey's over here. That's not who I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, man. For, you know, perhaps it's a marriage for people that are married in here that seems to be trumping your marriage. And that's a facade because no marriage is perfect. And I know I'm young and I haven't been married very long, but I've been around a lot of wise people to tell me early on that marriage is not perfect this side of heaven until Jesus comes back for his bride. So there might be some jealousy there. 
Or perhaps it's an opportunity or promotion that someone got at work or in some other avenue. And for a second here, I just want to address the kids and the teenagers. You guys have been troopers this morning. You have stuck with this long sermon already. But I just want to ask you a question. Perhaps you haven't been aware that there's these feelings circulating inside of your hearts this morning. Some of you in here, you haven't put your faith in Christ. You just don't understand the gospel yet. Some of you, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have and praise God for that. And so in regards to those that have put their faith in Christ, I mean, I'm sure that you're starting to discover how once you've put your faith in Christ by the power of the Spirit, there's a lot that changes with your friends, with your neighbors, with people at school. And the people that were once your friends are no longer your friends because they think that you are ridiculous or whatever. And so they started to be mean to you. They started to make fun of you. And there's these feelings going on where you know that God is faithful. You know that, that this is the way to take. And yet somehow there's these jealous feelings stirring, saying, God, are you going to leave me empty and bless that person over there who has no regard for you? It just seems unfair. But yet remember, Jesus is the wise and understanding one. He understands rejection. He hung on a cross and died for your sins, was just rejected by those that were his disciples. They fled in the middle of one of his toughest decisions. So maybe there's some jealousy going on there towards those people that have treated you terrible. Or kids in this room, there's ages of all sorts. Some of you in here are the older sibling like me. Some of you in here are the middle kids, and some of you are the youngest siblings. And we all have our different views of who has it better and who has the most unfair advantages or disadvantages. I'm the older child, so I think that the baby gets spoiled with everything, and all the older kids in the room said, yes, yes. Middle kids and younger kids are thinking, man, those older kids just have such respect. They seem to be friends with my parents, and yet, you know, that could be something the Lord wants to deal with you about this morning. You get angry. You get frustrated with your parents, and deep down you know your parents love you. You know that, that God loves you. You know that. And yet all of a sudden there's these angry outbursts. What in the world? Maybe the Holy Spirit wants you to just dig a little deeper and, and go to your parents and say, I'm not mad at you. There's, there's something going on. Would you pray with me? Would you help me? For sake of time, we're moving on to the second issue that James describes. Selfish ambition. And I would say this is the most predominant sin in every Christian's life. Because when you and I wake up in the morning, guess who's on our mind? It's not the Lord. And someone out there might be folding their arms and saying, Joel, I got the spiritual disciplines down. I got Psalm 23 coming off my tongue like no one's tomorrow when I wake up. I'm good. And I just want to say, praise God for that grace. That's a grace. It's a gift. Don't boast over that. Because I'm going to stick around and ask your family how you are when you come out of that bedroom and your coffee's not out there and your food isn't out there with your hangry self. I know, I sounded ridiculous there. but <laughs> uh, Let's diagnose some more. Let me ask you this with selfish ambition. Does any desire of yours have a selfish ambition connected? Could be a good desire from the Lord, but all of a sudden you're recognizing there's some selfish tendencies there. Are you frustrated when others don't notice you for something you said or did? Some kind of idea you had. Oh, the church ought to do this. Everybody thinks the church ought to do something different. Am I right, pastors? 
Maybe that's one of the examples. It got real quiet there for a second. Oh, boy. I have no one in mind, by the way, on that one, so that's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Do you... <laughs> Do you think that you need to be right all the time? And if so, why? Do you just always have to have the last word and you always have to be right? I'm right! Okay. Does everyone have to do what you want to do all the time? And when was the last time you considered someone else's feelings? I think these descriptions, they give us a little bit of a greater clarity into what's going on in our hearts below the surface. But again, do we actually slow down to take the time to let the Spirit of God, through the text of Scripture, convict us of these things, show us our need for Christ? And amid the despair here, we see that we start to have hope. Yes, for those of of you who feel downtrodden, we have hope as the verses go on. We have hope. And James starts to give us a barometer of knowing when we're abiding in Jesus, the wise and understanding one. Look at verses 17 through 18. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And you have to understand something. James chapter 1, in verses 2 through 5, when James is saying, hey, consider it all joy when you go through all sorts of trials and temptations. Because this is the trying of your faith. He says, but if you're not able to count it all joy, ask the Lord for wisdom. And then he goes on in the first chapter in 16 and 18 to say, every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. And so now James is circling back here in 317 to show us that Christ is the wisdom of God from above. When we ask for wisdom, guess what? Jesus is there to give us wisdom. And these character qualities here, yeah, we might exude some of them from time to time, but you know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit at work through Jesus Christ. Let's look at each of them. The first one, it's first pure. Jesus purifies our hearts, first and foremost from sin, but then as believers from all sorts of wrong motivations, all sorts of things going on below the surface. All sorts of things that we don't want to look at, Jesus purifies us from that. Secondly, he is our peace and he helps us to be peaceable in all circumstances. Thirdly, he helps us to be gentle and humble enough to receive from him, being teachable from scripture. Fourthly, open to reason. That's God's reason from his word. Jesus is the one that helps us to see our dependency and our need for him from his word. Fifth, full of mercy. Well, you recognize there that we have been shown a lot of mercy through the cross of Jesus Christ. And in that mercy, we are then so full of that mercy that we are then overflowing to other people who are undeserving of it. Sixth, full of good fruits. The Spirit is at work to make us look like Jesus. People around us in Christ's body, in the church, can say, hey, I know that you're struggling with this. I know that you got angry. I know that you've got this going on. But I see the Spirit at work in you. Seventh, it's impartial, which means we don't try to be God in deciding who is worthy of grace. And then eighth, it's sincere. It's, it's another word for honesty. We're honest with God, with ourselves, and each other so that Jesus can then wisely direct our steps. And then verse 18 shows that this is a harvest of righteousness. 
resulting because of Christ's righteousness that is our foundation. So as we wrap up this morning, I just want to ask, how can we be encouraged and look to Jesus to apply what we see here in this text? Because this is heavy, and it's intended to be. And I have three takeaways from our text this morning. First, the first takeaway is we can observe our actions through this approach of wisdom literature of slowing down and letting the Lord show us where we need his help from his word. Let God use the Bible and his creation and situations that you're going on in life to be those living parables, those parallels that you need to see the truth and the reality of our dependency for Jesus Christ. We may not always be able to let God's word diagnose us in the heat of the moment. I'll give you that. But there ought to be times for reflection, to slow down and to let the Lord work and use his word. Which brings us to the second takeaway, which is pray and look to Jesus' wise words in Scripture for instruction and then to lead us to confession, repentance with his church, his people. Let James 3.17 just be a good barometer for where our faith is at in the moment. I mean, I've started to do this, not in a legalistic type of way, but when I pray, when I look at where my life is at, when I see my life contradicting what I see in Scripture, I ask myself, wait a second, are my motives pure? Am I in a peaceful state in my heart? Am I in a humble and gentle place to receive someone else's correction or whether they're giving me instruction? Am I able to do this? And then that leads to the third point. Trust in Jesus, the wise one's finished work to make us whole in the not yet process of sanctification because he is the perfect gift from God from above, wisely showing us how to navigate trials to mature and to be whole in him. If you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your salvation from sin, I'm here to tell you, you're in a very scary, vulnerable place. That's a hard place to be in. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is folly and foolishness to those who are perishing. The word of the cross is the gospel message that I've tried to portray as best as I can throughout the sermon. It's that you and I can't do good on our own. It's that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, died the perfect death to save us from our sin against God and restore us to God. And that seems like foolishness to a watching world. But really, it's God's wisdom. It's the wise way God chose to save us. So in summary, Jesus wisely helps us to see things as he sees them, to look to his wise counsel and humble work that purifies our hearts and our actions in whatever circumstances we're facing. In summary, I think the Apostle Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians one twenty four and one thirty, where he said, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then eventually, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is our wise king who was silent on the cross until he cried out, Father, forgive them, and it is accomplished. It is this king's speech that has saved us and then directs us in his wisdom. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I just thank you that you are dealing with each of us on different levels today. I've preached what I feel like you've put on my heart to preach. Father, I pray for eyes that see, ears that hear, 
hearts that understand. Let our eyes be clear to see what you want us to see so that our whole bodies, our whole lives, our actions are full of your light, of your truth, and we demonstrate that our God is faithful and our God is good. And so, Lord, we just give you every person's heart in this room. We, we consecrate the rest of our days to you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.